0: Good morning, church, in the building and online. Glad that you're here to worship together with us this morning. Let's say our monthly memory verse together for the month of January. So now faith, hope and love abide these three. But the greatest of these is love. First Corinthians 13 13. We've been studying, beginning a study on the letter to the people of God in Corinth, Paul's letter of 1 Corinthians. And as we have studied this book, we are studying it under this gigantic question. How do we live as disciples of Jesus and function together as his church in an overwhelmingly unbelieving world? And I have another question for you today. And guys, I want to warn you, you want to get your rib protectors out. I'm thankful that my wife is currently participating from home and can't reach through the screen to elbow me with the next question I'm about to ask. Have you known or do you know anyone who always insists that they are right or that their way is best and the best way of doing something? Some of the husbands are looking at me like, hey, why didn't you warn my spouse? (laughs) These are some real personalities that we run into, some of us, on a daily basis. Perhaps all of us, at one time or another, could be guilty of using the popular American idiom of my way or the highway. Do it the way I want or get out. Missing from Paul's discourse on love are these words. Love is easy and always fun. <laughs> and we have said this before, and it bears saying it again. As the people of God gathered here in Paradise, PA, our desire should be to become known as children of love with a nature of love. Friends, when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, he does not dump on us a load of burden and responsibility. Rather, he transforms us from within and he gives to us a gift. And that gift that he gives to us is eternal life. Yes, but it's also the gift of a new nature, a nature of love. And so while love isn't always fun and easy, it can come more naturally. As we focus on Jesus and we abide in the true vine, he can and will produce within us the love that he asks from us. So how does this new nature of love that we've been given express itself towards others? This is the question in focus as Paul writes to the people in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Paul is functioning here as a navigator. He's leading us towards a full picture of how the believer's new nature should work. He's showing us the ways that are fruitful. Attitudes of patience and kindness. But he is also showing us the ways that are unfruitful. Envy, boasting, arrogance, rudeness. And today, Paul continues to lead us towards a clearer image of how our new nature expresses itself in our relationships here on earth. He's going to guide us towards the true light in which love always rejoices. If you have your Bibles, you're going to take And turn them to 1 Corinthians chapter 13 today. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We're going to be looking at verses 4 to 6. Specifically focusing in on the end of verse 5 into verse 6. 1 Corinthians 13, let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for its light. We thank you for its power. We thank we are thankful for its living and active nature. Lord, how you are able to use it to transform us, to guide us in our thinking and in our living. Paul talks about dying to himself daily. And Lord, it is a daily continual challenge for us to fix our eyes on you and turn ourselves outward to the people that you've drawn into our pathways each and every day. Father, as we study your word and we look more at what it means to love one another, teach us, guide us, direct us, motivate us from within, and help us to accomplish it in a way that honors you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. First Corinthians chapter 13, starting in verse 4. <clears throat> Paul has started in this letter, as we have started in 1 Corinthians 13, by identifying what love is, describing for us how love works. Love is patient and kind. We looked at that last week. Now, in this portion of his lyric, he's describing the antithesis of love, or telling us the ways in which love does not work. There is in the text a bit of a crescendo here. He's building through the negatives as they're drawn together in these two sentences and sandwiched between the positive expressions of love that Paul also defines. Paul spends a great deal of ink here in these first seven verses of chapter 13 telling us how our nature of love does not or should not express itself. In our relationships. In verses 4 through 7 alone. There are 8 negative expressions of love. To only 7 positive expressions. Let's take a look at some of the negatives. Some of which we covered last week. Sorry my clicker doesn't seem to be moving. I may need a new battery. I'm not sure. Are we off? Well. I guess we'll take a look at another time. (laughs) Paul says, starting in verse four, love does not envy. It does not boast. There it is. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist in its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing. Love does not insist on its own way. The idea that Paul is trying to convey here is that love is quick to defer to others. Simply put, when it comes to loving others, it should not be. It cannot be my way or the highway. Paul's covered this idea before, both in his letter and in other letters that he has written. First Corinthians chapter 10, verse 24, let no one seek his own good. But the good of his neighbor. Philippians chapter 2 verse 4. Let each of you look not only to his own interest. But also to the interest of others. Romans chapter 15 verse 1. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. And not to please ourselves. It is a reminder that love is not self-focused. But rather, one of the hallmarks of our new nature is that it is focused on others before ourselves. It is a reminder that as Christians, as followers of Jesus, we are not to be consumed with bettering ourselves, but rather with bettering the lives of those God places in our pathways, our neighbors, As as was mentioned by Todd earlier today, as we were singing the wonderful cross, Jesus himself demonstrated this kind of love, this other's mindedness in a way that should still serve as a motivating factor for us today. Jesus is the suffering servant who gave himself up for us all and whose attitude, Paul says, the people of God should attempt to. To emulate Philippians chapter two, verse five, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Friends, foundational to our understanding of how we are to relate to one another on earth is this instruction that we are to have the mind of Christ so walking in this new nature, the nature of love, putting on the mind of Christ, should lead to some commonly shared attitudes and behaviors within the body of Christ. And the Bible identifies these by using the phrase, one another. In fact, if you go to the New Testament, you will find the phrase, love one another, used over 16 times. But there are other ways... The Bible informs us that our love works in one another's lives. Listen to these. We're to be devoted to one another. We're to bear one another's burdens. We're to honor one another above ourselves. We're to consider one another better than ourselves. We're to live in harmony with one another. Building one another up. Accepting, admonishing, caring for and serving one another, forgiving and being patient and speaking truth with one another, being kind and compassionate to one another, worshiping and singing together with one another, submitting. Submitting to one another, teaching, comforting, encouraging, exhorting one another, showing hospitality towards one another, praying for one another and confessing our faults to one another. Now, none of these behaviors and attitudes are possible if we are consumed with insisting our own way. Rather, demanding our own way often leads us towards attitudes and postures that Paul is going to warn against in his next set of instructions. Look at the end of verse 5. At the end of verse 5, Paul says, love is not irritable, Or resentful. Real love, friends, is not easily irritated or provoked. Applying patience to love keeps us from becoming people who are easily irritated and provoked. Children who have been given a new nature, a nature of love, are slow to anger. Now let me ask you this. Have you ever watched a parent, a teacher, or a coach who is easily angered or provoked. Have you ever watched him? It's kind of like watching water boil really, really rapidly. And, And usually, I know in our home, because I'm probably one that's given to this sometimes, I am probably half as patient when my wife is not around as when she is around. It's so much easier when she's around to be patient. But when she is not in our home, my patience level drives to a very, very low boiling point. And you can watch. Usually, something happens. Most often, between children, say 90% of the time, some kind of activity between children going on that frustrates and upsets and makes me angry. And I'll ask them to stop. Or I'll say, Can we share? And we might share, but a few minutes later it starts again. And I remember one particular time, many years ago, the the three children, this is before we had the boys, they were playing downstairs in the basement and there was some yelling and screaming and fighting going on. And I went down the steps and, and I saw what they were doing. Sheila was not home, so my patience level was half of what it normally was. And I remember looking at them and said, that's it, we're done sharing in this house. It's not working. The sharing is not working. We're done. We're not sharing anymore in this house. I'd had enough. I was irritated. And and irritability, friends, is evidence that our love has not been seasoned with patience. Irritability is evidence that our love has not been seasoned with patience. Resentfulness towards one another is evidence that our love is not seasoned with kindness. And we covered patience in detail last week, so we won't spend as much time in depth on it today. But it was James who said this in his book. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. Some of you saw the news. Larry King passed away yesterday yesterday. Many of you remember Larry King. I would suspect most of you my age or above in this room would know who Larry King was. And one of his greatest skills and attributes was that he was a phenomenal interviewer. And he was quoted as saying, I never learned anything while talking. Wow. Quick to listen. Slow to speak. Slow to become angry. Have you ever worked with a person who's quick to anger? I was a young coach. It was my second job in coaching. And the head coach that I was working for was so quick to anger. It was so hard. It felt like we were walking around on eggshells all the time. And he'd come into the coach's office when he was most angry. None of us would have any idea what set him off or what triggered him. And he would grab the broom and just go around the coach's office. You know, brooming a thousand miles per hour. And none of us knew what was going on. It was just miserable. I almost left the profession of coaching. I couldn't work under him. It's terrible. Do You know, God had something in store for me in working with that individual. I had to learn how to grow in my own patience, my own kindness, my own ability to listen, my own ability to love. Jesus does that, friends. He puts people in our lives who don't often demonstrate these qualities. He puts people in our lives sometimes who are irritable. He puts people in our lives sometimes that do hold resentment. Maybe he puts people in our lives sometimes that are unkind. That are boastful, envious, maybe even arrogant. And he does that because he wants to grow us in our ability to love. He wants to use that relationship to help us to grow. A person who's easily irritated and angered is hard to work together with. And perhaps this is why Paul says to Titus that anyone serving, as a pastor, elder, overseer, or shepherd in his congregation was not to be quick-tempered. Look at these instructions. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered. We have all seen, many of us have seen, the damaging consequences of a person who is irritable or quick-tempered. Someone who quickly loses their composure. Meetings are seized. People are manipulated. Words are misrepresented. Lives are mistreated, and an entire church, or organization, or business, or team that they are a part of suffer the consequences because of their behavior. And Paul follows this idea of of not being irritable with this challenge to not be resentful, because the two attitudes often walk together. A more specific translation of the word resentful here is a phrase that many of us have heard before because it's used in other translations. Paul says, love keeps no records of wrong. Keeping no record of wrongs. Sometimes, friends, we harbor pain from the past. We hold on to it. We're not quick to forgive. We forget mercy where we've been shown mercy. We hold on to judgment and bitterness and sometimes even hostility. And those attitudes often will lead to unhealthy behaviors when we begin to gossip. We begin to slander. We begin to backbite, devour one another. And we forget that a person who is forgiven much should also be quick to forgive. A person who has been shown great mercy should also be quick to demonstrate mercy towards others. Friends, this is the concept that Jesus is pressing into as he unpacks his parable of the unforgiving servant in the book of Matthew. Some of you remember it. Write this uh, scripture reference down. It might already be in your notes. Take some time this week and read it. Peter asked Jesus, Lord, how often should I forgive my neighbor if he sins against me? Do you remember this? Peter is seeking to know what kind of a record of wrongs he's allowed to keep. When is it okay for me to start keeping a record of wrongs, Lord Jesus' response is that forgiveness must be given without measure or keeping account of wrongs because we, friends, have been forgiven in the same manner. 77 times is not a literal figure for us to stop at. Paul didn't get his ledger out and write a person's name down at the top of the page and say, okay, we're at 76. Next time, that's it. Done. Done. What Jesus is saying is figurative. We're always to demonstrate forgiveness. We are being less than loving when we keep records of wrongdoings. Not every relationship is easy. As we sit here together in this room, we all know that. There are some relationships that God has brought into our life that require great care and meticulous pruning to cultivate and keep healthy. It's hard not to grow resentful towards people who are difficult to love. Is it not? But aren't we thankful, friends, that Jesus has kept no record of wrong on our behalf? Jesus canceled our debt, finding us with nothing to bring. We were exceptionally needy. We were dead and buried under the insurmountable debt of our trespasses and sins. And what did Jesus do? He credited righteousness to us. He was not irritable or resentful towards us. Rather, he was patient and kind. Our sin was the sin that he became And took upon himself and his righteousness was the righteousness that he freely credited so that he could justly declare us righteous in the sight of God. Second Corinthians chapter five, that is in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Jesus did this. And because he did, we can be counted as blessed. As Paul addressed to the people of God in Rome, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Now, the caution that Paul follows this instruction with at the beginning of verse 6 is a reminder that while we are to keep no record of wrongs, that love also does not rejoice at wrongdoing. Look at the beginning of verse 6. Paul says, Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing. Friends, it is the writer in Proverbs who tells us it's the wicked who rejoice in doing evil and delight in the perverseness of evil. As long as we are here on this earth, those who rejoice in wrongdoing will always be among us. And friends, we know that wrongdoing and wickedness is sin. And we also know this sin is always committed on two fronts, not just one. First. Our sins offend God. Absolutely. But second. Our sins offend others as well. We don't just sin against God. We also sin against one another. And real love finds no joy or satisfaction in the mistreatment of other people. And when we consider the current culture that we live in today. Where can we even start To unpack this, I don't know about you, but it feels like we live in a culture that rejoices oftentimes when people mistreat one another. You see it on the news, people are mistreated and there's people rejoicing and getting happy about it, nearly celebrating. But friends, how about ourselves? Have we participated in the mistreatment of other people? Have we ever participated in gossip? or slander. Have we spread false information about someone? Have we ever misrepresented or mischaracterized another person's words or actions? Have we ever lied cheated, stolen, discredited, torn down, bitten or even devoured another person? These were issues, friends, that aren't just for our church today. We're going to see as we study the book of 1 Corinthians, the letter that Paul wrote to the people of God in Corinth, that all of these behaviors were evident in the early church. Paul's going after them. And he says one of the greatest and most effective ways to conquer these attitudes and behaviors in the church is to know how to rightly and appropriately love one another sin was the same then as it is now and it's interesting friends no matter how bad or how wrong the one is in our eyes who is being mistreated there is no room to justify that mistreatment god does not delight in wickedness and neither should we psalm chapter 5 verse 4 For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell in you. And though God despises wickedness, we know this, the Bible communicates. Interestingly enough, the Bible also teaches us that God takes no delight in the death of the wicked. Ezekiel chapter 33 verse 11, say to them. As I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. But that the wicked turn from his way and live, turn back, turn back from your evil ways. For why will you die, O house of Israel? If God finds no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Then why should we as his children? Rather than finding delight in the death of the wicked, God desires that the wicked would turn from their evil ways to life. You may have noticed when you came in today on the screens outside of the sanctuary and and, and maybe even as you sat in your pews in your weekly, that there was um, some notes about sanctity of life. The baby bottle campaign that we're doing again as we promote the sanctity of human life. When we do this, we advocate for unborn life, setting aside a Sunday to raise awareness and publicly show our support for the preciousness of every life in a womb. And I may gently ask this, should this pro-life ethic and advocacy end after birth? Does it extend beyond the womb and express itself towards the wicked all of the way to death. Friends, Jesus found us firmly entrenched in our own wickedness. That is how we were found dead in our trespasses and sins. We, we can't cover over how bad our wickedness was. We can't sugarcoat it. We can't try to clean it up. It was sin, sin for all that it is. Darkness. An offense that separated us from God. And friends, I don't know about you, but I am so thankful that Jesus is a friend of sinners. Why, despising our sin, he looked through it and loved the sinner. So, for those who are in Christ, this reminds us that while we have turned from wickedness, we are not necessarily to turn from the people who perpetuate it. That's not to say we participate in wickedness with them, nor do we practice it, nor do we endorse it or support it or encourage it in any way. Rather, what we are to do as the body of Christ, as the light of Christ lives within us, is we are to show and communicate a better and more fulfilling way, the abundant life that comes in a relationship with Jesus Christ. We're to call friends, family, people that we come into contact with to practice wickedness to turn, to turn from it, to repent, to find life. Pursue Christ. Friends, abundant life can only be found in Jesus Christ. And so we go into all the world and we preach the truth, the good news, which is the power of God unto salvation, and we rejoice and unite in its message, because that is what Paul says love does. Love rejoices in truth. You know, there's an interesting scene. Many of you are familiar with it. It transpires during the trial of Jesus towards the end of his life. You can find it in John chapter 18. The crucifixion is nearing. Jesus is standing before Pilate. Pilate is interrogating Jesus. He's trying to get to the truth behind why the Jewish religious leaders so badly wanted to see Jesus crucified. The first question that Pilate asked Jesus, you might remember the first question. He says, are you the king of the Jews? Remember how Jesus responds? Who's asking? Pilate then counters with the second question. What have you done? Jesus answered in verse 36. He says this. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world. My servants would have been fighting. That I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. What Pilate hears in Jesus' response. Is that Jesus has his own Kingdom, and so Pilate inquires again. For the second time, he looks at Jesus and he says, "So are you a king?" Jesus's response is stunning. He says, "This for this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to." The truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. In two sentences, friends. These, are, these sentences are massively important to our faith. In two sentences, Jesus reveals the purpose for which he was born. And the purpose for which he came into the world. So next time somebody says to us, why did Jesus come into the world? Why was Jesus born? Let's just use his own words. He tells us right here. It's a great place to start. Jesus was born and came into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to the voice of Jesus. And Jesus had already affirmed these things earlier in his ministry. In fact, the gospel of John opens with this verse. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Verse 18 of John chapter 1. Jesus makes God known to man. If we know God, we should be thankful. It was Jesus who's revealed him to us. God was the truth that Jesus bore witness to. And only Jesus could bear true witness and testimony to the truth of God, because he himself was God. John chapter 14, verse six, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, the truth, the truth. And the life. No one comes to the father except through me. And in John chapter 10, the good shepherd identifies the response of his sheep to the truth. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And at the end of Jesus' ministry, as the elders gathered on Thursday this week, we were studying John chapter 17, looking at the prayer of Jesus in the garden. And one of the prayers that he prays in verse 25 and 26. O righteous father, even though the world does not know you, I know you and these know that you have sent me. I have made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Now, click back with me to the interaction Jesus is having with Pilate. Do you remember how Pilate leaves the interrogation? Do you remember what he says? He's exasperated. This whole drama, this whole trial has tired him out. And he's questioning Jesus. And he still can't come to the truth of what the matter is. He has one final exhaustive question for Christ. Do you remember it? What is truth? What is ironic about that question? Pilate is asking the truth. What truth is. He is standing before truth personified. And he is blind. Pilate's example, friends, was the example of one who did not rejoice in truth. Rather, he dismissed it. He attempted to destroy it and to bury it. So the question that we might ask is, what are we to be rejoicing in? If love rejoices in truth, then maybe we ask the same question that Pilate asked. What is truth? Friends, God is truth. And his word is true. True. It is the truth of His Word that should give us cause to rejoice. It is the truth of God's Word that sets us apart from the unbelieving world. When they are hopeless, friends, we have a place to go that gives us great hope. It's the truth of His Word. Jesus prayed to the Father again in John chapter 17. Sanctify them in truth. What did Jesus say was truth, friends? His own words. Your word is truth. It is the word of God that teaches us how to live both in a right relationship with God and a right relationship with others. And friends, that is what we should be rejoicing in as the body of Christ today and every day. That God is true and that his word is true. And it should motivate within us great hope and great joy and great love. What does rejoicing in truth look like? What might it mean for our lives? Friends, rejoicing in truth means that We keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. No matter the season, storm, or current circumstance in our lives, our eyes are on him because he is who we know to be true all the time. Rejoicing in truth might mean that we are always ready to give an answer for the hope that Christ has motivated within us. I had a student come up to me one day on the track. I'll never forget it. Years ago, it was a young lady. She's going through a terrible time in her life with her family. Things were so messed up. And she came up and she said, Coach, how do you come out here every day with such great hope? My life is a wreck. I'm so thankful for Jesus. Jesus. Because I have no other place to go with an answer to that question than Jesus Christ. The only way I can walk out here and stand before you every day is because of Jesus Christ. The only way and reason I can have a positive attitude and stand before you with great joy when my life is falling apart is because of Jesus. And that's not some story, it's not some rhetoric, and it's not some wishful thinking, it's the absolute truth. Rejoicing in truth might look like a difficult conversation with a brother or sister in Christ who's making decisions or participating in behaviors that are damaging and detrimental to their life. Friends, that's love. Love doesn't let a brother or sister in Christ just run their life off the rails. We got to go. We got to have those difficult conversations that are grounded in truth. Brother, you got to turn. That's only going to lead to destruction. It's only going to destroy the relationship that you have with your wife. You got to turn from it. We got to have those conversations. Love rejoices in truth, so it has those conversations. Rejoicing in truth might mean that when people look at our lives and the testimonies of our lives, they see hearts and behaviors and attitudes that are overflowing with gratitude because of our great thankfulness for Jesus. Lord, Lord, he he helps us. Because I can tell you, and, and, and you can share with me, it's easy to be cranky these days. And the Lord needs to help us be grateful. The Lord needs to help motivate within us thankfulness because it's easy to be cranky. It's easy to be all angry and disheveled. The unbelieving world stands before Jesus just as Pilate stood before him. They're blind, friends. Our hearts should break for those who don't live in the truth. As the church, friends, our testimony, as the people of God who have the truth, we should be a testimony of rejoicing and celebrating the goodness and the grace, the love and compassion of our Savior. That the world may see, that the world may know as God works through our words and actions that surely there is a better way, a fuller way, a more abundant way than the way they have chosen Perhaps for us, friends, the challenge of our lives is that our words and our actions work together to testify to the truth that Jesus is the way to an abundant life. Next time someone looks at you and says, how are you so hopeful? How can you go through this with such joy? How? I don't understand if I was in your position, I'd be falling apart. Just look at them and say, I'm so thankful for Jesus. Because we've been given the truth in Jesus Christ, we can live with great security, free from fear, because the truth is for those belonging to Jesus, eternity with God is both our common and our glorious hope. Our team is going to come as we conclude our services today, friends, one way that we can live as disciples of Jesus and function together as his church in an overwhelmingly unbelieving world is to be known as a people who demonstrate His love by rejoicing in truth. Let's pray. Father, we are always thankful for this corporate time together to study Your Word, to look at it, to see it, and to learn together how You would like us to use it and apply it in our lives. Lord, we acknowledge this morning For many of us in this room, there are relationships in our lives, people that you have brought into our pathways that are difficult to love. Give us patience and kindness to love them anyway. Lord, we acknowledge as we gather this morning and surround your word that there are people in our lives who are broken and feel hopeless. Lord, help us to show them how thankful and hopeful we are because of you and your son, Jesus. Lord, as we gather around your word this morning, we acknowledge that there may be people that you've placed in our lives who are walking away from the truth. Who are participating in wickedness, who are participating in behaviors and attitudes and actions that are harmful. And will only lead to their destruction. Lord, motivate within us the courage and the boldness to have difficult conversations. Truth filled conversations. Father, you have called us into this world for a purpose. For the amount of time that you have given us here on earth. And you have told us that we are to be as salt and light. But we need your help. Because it's so easy to be overcome with the things of this world. Keep us focused. Keep us tuned in to your goodness and your grace. And help us demonstrate to others the love that you have demonstrated to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.